Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of your favorite podcast, the Canadian Real Estate Investor. My name is Nick Hill. I'm your co-host. I'm joined today by none other than Daniel Foch. Dan, what's going on, man? Yeah, not much. Just re-recording an episode, you know. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it another time. I'm a little sensitive about it right now. <laughs> what are we talking about today? We have got a banger episode for everyone today. We are going to be talking about the biggest real estate bubble in the world. Dun, dun, well, I, dun. I tried that joke the first time we recorded, and I'm trying it again. <laughs> no, you nailed it this time, actually. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the UBS Bubble Index, which is Dan's one of Dan's favorite annual reports to come out. So UBS is a multinational investment bank and financial services company founded and based in Switzerland. You know, when you hear about these Swiss bankers and Swiss banking, well, this is one of them. So it maintains a presence in major financial centers across the world and is the largest Swiss banking institution and the largest private bank in the world. They released an annual report that recently has characterized two Canadian cities among the world's leading housing bubble risks. So usually when you have two things that you are associated with in the top 10, you're happy about it. But when it's a housing bubble index, maybe not. We've got Toronto taking the top spot globally. Cue the applause and Vancouver in a not so distant sixth place. Okay. So it's kind of funny because like, it's like, why, first of all, why does UBS care about how Canadian real estate is doing the largest private bank in the world for context? These are the guys who lend the money to the people who lend you the money. Like when you hear about people buying mortgage backed securities, it's them, right? And so anyway, that, that part's kind of funny. And a lot of people knock the report, but in my opinion, they've actually had a pretty good track record when it comes to Canadian real estate, especially 2016, the UBS bubble index named Vancouver, the number one bubble in the world. And prices in Vancouver dropped 16 to 18% that year and volume dropped and volume was down by 20 to 40% that year or year over year. And 2017, UBS named Toronto, the number one bubble in the world. So this isn't the first time that Toronto's made this list. And I know a lot of our listeners, look, we're not Toronto is in the center, the center of the universe kind of guys. We don't want to be those kind of guys. So th- this episode is, it's not exceptionally painting Toronto as that. It's, it's a scary, this is a scary reason to be the center of the world, right? So 2017, house prices dropped in the greater Toronto area from 20 to 40%, depending on the location. Now, With the years that you're mentioning, I think it is worth noting that both of the cities did see an introduction of non-resident speculation tax in those years. Now, because many people would say that that might have actually been the catalyst that reduced the market a little bit. And I actually think those were designed to cool off the market. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning, especially given that you know we're actually seeing this type of tax happening at a national level starting in January 1st of 2023. So before we saw this new nationwide foreign homebuyer ban, the BC government first launched an additional property transfer tax, which is you know basically a land transfer tax for non-resident buyers in August of 2016. 
And basically, if a buyer is a foreign national, foreign corporation, or a taxable trustee, they must pay an additional property transfer tax on the property's fair value if the property is within specified areas of BC, basically the greater Vancouver area, the, the GVA as I'm calling it, which is apparently not allowed. I've been, I've been messaged a couple of times with people gatekeeping that acronym. But anyway, the Toronto Non-Resident Speculation Tax, or NRST, is a tax specifically for foreign investors aiming to buy property in the greater Golden Horseshoe region of Ontario, which is sort of the greater Toronto area, and then north to like... Aurelia and east to like Bowmanville. This tax requires them to pay an additional 15% tax rate on top of all the shelter costs associated with the property. Since being imposed, foreign bought sales of real estate in the Toronto region have dropped from over 5% to just over 3%. So it has had maybe potentially an impact. This came into place in April 2017. I think it was like the 16th that they announced it and it was actually like 420 that it came into place. I don't get it. Please explain yourself. <laughs> I'm kidding. Let's move on from that. So really interesting stuff. And I guess it's kind of tough to distinguish whether or not the bubble index is the cause or the effect of these foreign homeownership bans or taxes coming into play. Kind of a chicken and egg situation, right? But I think it's important because policy obviously has a pretty solid correlation with prices. Dan, would you agree? Yeah, I, th I think it's tough to really get an idea for what was happening in those two markets. And it's sort of a chicken and egg problem. Like, were the policymakers responding to UBS calling us names or was, <laughs> you know, and either it does have an impact or the legislators in Canada are notoriously good at timing the market, or maybe it's a little bit of both. In my experience in the GTA in 2017, the market was running so hot. And early April, we saw like this huge supply flood, this flood of listings. It was like everybody saw the prices going up and sellers were starting to get opportunistic. Price growth started to tap out at almost the exact time that the policy response was put into place, that 420 moment that I was telling you. And I remember this time being so crazy. There were literally foreign investors running around, scooping up so much property before the tax came into place. There was still a lot of bullishness in the market. Then right after that, basically prices started to drop and they dropped from April to August, as much as 40% in a few areas of the greater Toronto area. And prices fell nationally that year as well, because interest rates were rising. But I also think there was a negative wealth effect coming out of 2016 and 2017 in the contraction of Canada's two biggest housing markets, Toronto and Vancouver. Yeah, you know, it's and it's hilarious to see people in the in the Canadian real estate space and, and specifically on, on some social medias saying that Canadian house prices will only go up and you know it's still a good time to buy and, and et cetera, et cetera. All these all these clickbait things that we're seeing from people in the space because we've literally seen like crazy face ripping volatility within those two major markets within one mortgage term, which I think really needs to be looked at, right? Like we're seeing double digit increases and decreases in Toronto and Vancouver within a five or six year period. But anyways, before we lose track of things here, Dan, let's talk a bit more about this report and and bubbles in general. Yeah, so I'm just honestly going to preface by reading the preface from the UBS report because they, they've worded it exceptionally well. And I would encourage a lot of you to follow along if you want, just Google UBS real estate bubble index. We're going to link to it in the show notes as well. But they say that in many cities, there's not enough housing supply. And by its very nature, housing supply cannot be expanded at will in the short term. So it takes a long time to build houses. We know this. Thanks to urbanization, this means property prices should rise significantly in the long run, more or less summing up the common narrative on the value growth of urban homes. The strong real estate boom of the last decade underlines this credo once again. However, 
If urban residential rents are used as a benchmark, the supposed scarcity effect evaporates. Rents have only risen hand-in-hand with local wages over the same period. The main reason for the exorbitant increases in home prices then must have to lie elsewhere. Indeed, the property market has long been supported by one major buttress in particular, central banks. That's the scary man on Halloween. Ultra-low financing conditions and demand outpacing construction have led to increasingly optimistic price expectations among buyers. Even the most buoyant expectations have been exceeded in some cases in recent times. As a result, the imbalances have become increasingly severe. But the picture is quickly changing. Uh Uh-oh. Interest rates and in turn financing costs have climbed in recent months to combat elevated inflation. At the same time, several shocks have rocked financial markets worldwide. Consequently, the willingness to pay for owner-occupied homes is likely to take a hit. In cities with strong population growth, such an adjustment could manifest in the form of a prolonged stagnation in the nominal purchase prices. But as real estate markets rarely trend sideways, this is not the most likely outcome. Wow, a lot of stuff in there. So what does it all mean? Let's take a look at it by asking a question. What is bubble tea? No, sorry. What is a bubble? I have no idea what bubble tea is, but we do know what an economic bubble is. So a bubble is an economic cycle that is characterized by rapid escalation of market value, particularly in the price of assets. The fast inflation is followed by a quick decrease in value or a contraction that is sometimes referred to as a crash or the bursting of a bubble. Typically, a bubble is created by a surge in asset prices that is driven by exuberant market behavior. During a bubble, assets typically trade at a price or within a price range that greatly exceeds the asset's intrinsic value, meaning the price does not align with the fundamentals of that asset, essentially output, cash flow, what have you. The cause of bubbles is disputed by economists. Some economists even disagree that bubbles occur at all on the basis that asset prices frequently deviate from their intrinsic value. However, bubbles are usually only identified and studied in retrospect after a massive drop in prices has already occurred. That part's kind of ironic too, because they're saying, you know, you can't, we don't know. There's no point in calling it a bubble. You can only see it in hindsight, right? So let's take a quick break and then we will, we'll get to what causes a bubble here. Okay. So what causes a bubble? So the economic bubble occurs at any time that the price of a good basically deviates so far above the item's real, in quotation marks, value. Bubbles are usually attributed to a change in investor sentiment or behavior, and then you get this state called a mania. Basically, people like everybody rushing in, it's just craziness. And bubbles in equity markets and other economies, they cause the resources, especially cash, but also you know time, energy, research, blah, blah, analysts to be transferred in these areas of, of rapid growth. And at the end of a bubble, resources get moved again. And we're going to get to a cool iteration of that. But resources get moved again, causing prices to deflate. In Japan, they saw a bubble in the 80s after the country's banks were partially deregulated. And to be honest, I actually don't think they've recovered from that one. I feel like So this caused a huge surge in in the prices of real estate and stock prices. And then the dot-com boom, also called the dot-com bubble, was a stock market. Basically, this is in the late 90s, early, I think it was like 2000s when it actually blew off. But it was basically a bunch of speculation in internet-related companies. So anything that had like a dot-com, pets.com is actually like the first, the most like notable example because, and that that was sort of like the big first failure in, that was their Enron moment, let's call it. And people bought these technology stocks at like 
obscene multiples and believing i don't even think we've hit them today given like how how and I, it probably best not for me to touch on that stuff but anyway what happened after was confidence was lost and this massive market correction occurred so we're going to take a break now and tell a story because we love doing that kind of stuff on this podcast and this is from investopedia where if you're just learning you know invest in terminology or any kind of you have any interest in investing whatsoever go on investopedia it's fantastic this is a story about the first bubble ever it's called tulip mania well it may seem absurd to suggest a flower could bring down a whole economy that is exactly what happened in holland in the early 1600s the tulip bulb trade initially started by accident a botanist brought tulip bulbs from constantinople and planted them for his own scientific research Neighbors then stole the bulbs and began selling them. The wealthy then began to collect some of the more rare varieties as a luxury good. As their demand increased, the prices of bulbs surged. Some rare varieties of tulips commanded astronomical prices. Bulbs were traded for anything with a store of value, including homes and land. And at its peak, tulip mania had created such a frenzy that fortunes were made overnight. The creation of a futures exchange where tulips were bought and sold through contracts with no actual delivery fueled the speculative pricing. The bubble then burst when a seller arranged a big purchase with a buyer, and the buyer failed to show. At this point, it was clear that the price increases were unsustainable. This created panic that spiraled throughout Europe, driving the worth of the tulip bulb down to a tiny fraction of its recent price. Dutch authorities even stepped in to try to calm the panic down by allowing contract holders to be freed from their contracts for 10% of the contract value. In the end, those fortunes were lost by both noblemen and laymen alike. I'd probably be the layman in this, in this situation here. Yeah, I think we're still at that layman level. But all that stuff sounds pretty familiar though, right? Now, obviously, this is a bit of an extreme example, but just imagine I had said houses in 2022 in Canada – instead of tulips in the 1600s in Holland. Are we that far off? I mean, I don't know. We did just recently see, you know, like this futures exchange basically be created with pre-construction contracts where you can buy, you know, non-existent condos across the country. And, and a lot of people like that as an investment vehicle and it's made a lot of people a lot of money. You know, I don't want to get too ominous, but maybe we can bring it back home to our next door neighbor who we're not stealing tulip bubbles from or tulip bulbs from the US housing bubble. So, Again, from Investopedia, the U.S. housing bubble was a real estate bubble that affected more than half of the United States in the mid-2000s. It was partially the result of the dot-com bubble. This is interesting. I didn't know this part. As the markets began to crash, values in real estate started to rise. So you talk about that reallocation of capital, right? At the same time, the demand for homeownership started to grow at almost alarming levels, and interest rates started to decline. A concurrent force was a lenient approach on the part of lenders. This meant that almost anyone could become a homeowner, including your landlord's dog, as we remember is a, from an amazing example in the Big Short movie. Banks reduced their requirements to borrow and started to lower their interest rates. Adjustable rate mortgages, or ARMs, became a favorite with low introductory rates, so like basically teaser rate mortgages that we have in the Canadian market right now, and refinancing options within three to five years. It actually sounds remarkably similar to our intentional mortgage system structure in Canada. Many people started to buy homes and some people flipped them for profits. But when the stock market began to rise again, interest rates also started to rise. 
So, you know, what happened when you see economic recovery, rates can kind of rise. Again, rates are sort of a pol- uses a policy tool to stimulate the economy. So for homeowners with these adjustable rate mortgages, which is like basically every Canadian, we're all in five-year mortgage terms, their mortgages started to refinance at higher rates. The value of these homes took a nosedive because people had to sell off due to this increased capital cost. And that triggered a sell-off in mortgage-backed securities. Fortunately, in Canada, we have a very small mortgage-backed securities market. It's not globally significant like what you saw in the US. And UBS, I don't even know if they're buying mortgage-backed securities from CMHC, which is basically the only insured mortgage-backed securities seller in Canada. But this whole thing in the US eventually led to millions of dollars of mortgage defaults and, and the collapse of the global economy, which is pretty messed up. So you think about the stages of a bubble here, basically they call it displacement, a boom, and then a euphoria, like a high as a result of everybody seeing all of this money being made. You know, And you can see it in smaller iterations in, in other assets in the past couple of years. And then you hit this peak and then a very prompt collapse. And you can also see this in smaller little cycles in other Canadian or in other assets, stocks, et cetera, where, you know, you see a lot of, especially young people buying into those huge run-ups, right? Yeah. You know, it's funny in in retrospect, I, and Dan, maybe, maybe you and I can put this together, but I, I, it'd be interesting to go back and like put a date to the displacement, put a date to the boom, put a date to the euphoria and like an allotted amount of time. Like how long was... Canada high on cheap debt for before we peaked and then inevitably collapsed, right? Yeah. It's tough to say because like, I don't know if we're looking at a collapse. Like I, I think we're, you know, there's also cycles. Like it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a bubble in this ominous like bubble burst, but it, I mean, regardless, there's also cyclical events that happen and, and those can suck too. Right, exactly. And and whether it's a collapse or, a, a, you know, a correction with, with an asterisk on it, you know, we are definitely seeing changes in the market. But Let's move on and talk kind of specifically about the UBS real estate bubble report, whether or not there really is a bubble and why this all matters to you, the listener, the Canadian real estate investor. I mean, this does sound kind of ominous, as you said, Dan, a bit of you know fear-mongering stuff, which we try not to do on, on this podcast. We let you do that on TikTok, right? <laughs> yeah, I do have a few people who who call me a, a big fear monger, especially on TikTok where all the bulls hang out. But I actually felt this UBS bubble report was almost more bullish long term than it was bearish from my perspective. I mean, I look if we look at those two instances of where UBS correctly called Vancouver and, and Toronto bubbles. I mean, 2016 Vancouver prices dropped 20 to 30 percent, and in 2017 GTA prices dropped like 30 to 40 percent. Yeah, and I mean we're right back in that delta right now, right? I think we're at you know, almost 30%, I believe we're at 20 down 26% in the GTA. Yeah, something like that, depending on what the metric you use is like average or median. But you know, we're already watching a lot of the risk get washed away by the counter cycle. I've said it a few times, and they actually acknowledge this in the report as well, that you know, we're already seeing the correction underway. I've said it a few times that I personally find it easier to get good deals on the way down than the way up. Like the lower a market gets, the less risky it becomes. So as you go down, there's less downside potential, there's less room below you, and there's more upside potential, there's more room above you. It's just math. Yeah, so I guess it's the same token on the way up. Each time the market goes up, there's more downside risk and less upside potential. Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of people don't really seem to understand that. And I think a big reason for that is because, you know, we see this opportunity cost. We see this this missing out as a risk. Would you be referring to the fear of missing out maybe? Well, I was calling it like the risk of missing out. I'm thinking maybe we can come up with an acronym for it, like ROMO. ROMO? (laughs) Well, actually, you know, we kind of had a joke there that FOMO and YOLO 
are a very dangerous combination. I think that was a lot of the sentiment driving a lot of real estate transactions. Yeah. I mean, that was your Wall Street bets right there, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's why, you know, we focus on real estate as a way to increase your income, right? And for beginner investors, especially because we want to focus on things we can change, not the things we can't change. We can't change the interest rate. We can't change that the market is going to go down or what the economy is going to do, but we can change our income by buying income property. Love that. And now we can also change the price of said asset by negotiating because guess what? Negotiating is back. You know, it was very one-sided for the past two years. Now it's easier to negotiate on the way down. Yeah, exactly. So you have the luxury of actually being able to change certain things in the in the equation right now. And so we can focus on the things that we can change and we can actively change those and, and not pay a ton of attention to the things that we can't change. The other thing I like about this bubble report is that it makes you look at Toronto and Vancouver embedded in this list of cities around the world that are really recognizable. You almost would know every single name of the other cities on this list. And it almost makes you feel like, you know, we're about to become a big deal if we're not already. Yeah, it's basically like, you know, I don't know if you're a, you're so who's a, you're who? a D-list actor. Yeah, you're a D-list actor and you get you get invited to the Oscars for the first time or something like that, right? So I'm going to rifle off a list here of world-class cities that are the most bubbly real estate markets in the world, according to UBS. Toronto in numero uno. Once again, we Dan, it was 2017. I believe that we were first last time. Frankfurt was last year's leader, then followed closely by Zurich, Munich, Hong Kong, Vancouver down in sixth place for Canada's second appearance on the list, followed by Amsterdam, Tel Aviv, Tokyo, Miami, Los Angeles, Stockholm, Paris, Sydney, Geneva, London, San Francisco, Boston, Madrid, New York, Singapore, Milan, and Sao Paulo. Dan, I don't recognize many of these places. Yeah, they're they're up and coming. Nobody's ever heard of them. <laughs> it's more like nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Too expensive. Yeah. So there are a couple of notes here on the page where that list is found. I think it's page five of the report, by the way. So if you're following along, we'll link to the report in the show notes. Nominal house price growth in the 25 cities analyzed accelerated to almost... 10% on average from mid-2021 to 2022, the highest increase since 2007. Good year, 2007. <laughs> in fact, all but three cities, Paris, Hong Kong, and Stockholm, saw their house prices climb. The highest regional price growth of more than 15% in nominal terms was recorded in, North, in the North American cities. On top of this, an acceleration in the growth of outstanding mortgages was, evidently, was evident in, all, in virtually all cities, and for the second year in a row, household debt grew significantly faster than the long-term average. The lending boom was conspicuously strong in the Middle East, the U.S., and Canada and Australia. Since the pandemic, we observe an increase in aggregate household debt relative to economic output in many of the analyzed economies. Even though valuations are, are elevated, index scores have not increased on average compared to last year. So it's not necessarily getting worse. Strong income and rental growth have mitigated the imbalances. Housing prices in non-urban areas have increased faster than in cities. So areas outside, remember we talked about this urban exodus, more risk being in the suburbs, this sort of reurbanization of demand. Additionally, price growth has slowed significantly in inflation-adjusted terms. That's because inflation is getting absolutely horrible. House price growth was outpaced by consumer prices in 10 out of 25 markets analyzed. 
Oh, that is brutal to hear. I mean, that that is a major issue right there. Now, there's another chart on the page. We go over the four metrics to use to determine the bubbliness of the property market. Again, follow along. There's a ton of great graphics, infographics, and and really there's only a few pages about Canada. I think I think the report's about 20 pages overall. Two or three of them are, are directly relevant to us. So price bubbles are a recurring phenomenon in property markets. The term bubble refers to a substantial and sustained mispricing of an asset, the existence of which cannot be proved unless it bursts. But historically, data reveals patterns of property market excess. Typical signs include a decoupling of prices from local incomes and rents and imbalances in the real economy, such as excessive lending and construction activity. Wow, that all sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, yeah. and it's interesting because they don't elaborate that much on the lending or construction elements, especially for Toronto, but they do touch on price to local income and rent, which first appears on the next page, page six of the report. So this page includes a list of markets ranked by their price growth. So this is top 10 off that list based on which cities saw the most price growth in 2022. So it's Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Tel Aviv, Boston, Amsterdam, Toronto, Vancouver, Warsaw, and Singapore. So Canada's cities ranked seven and eight on that list. Doesn't actually sound like number one bubble territory really, does it? Kind of insulting to be honest. What the heck? I thought we were number one. So let's go through and read a bit more. The text on that page starts with a list heading that says revival of urban demand. So rents are higher than before the pandemic in every city analyzed with the exception of Tokyo as the decline in 2020 was followed by a significant recovery in recent quarters. On average, rents in all those cities rose by virtually the same pace as in pre-pandemic years as a clear sign that urbanization trend has not slowed down. This was the most pronounced in U.S. cities, Dubai, and Singapore, where a significant increase in rents arose from solid growth in demand for housing, driven by higher immigration or strong household formation after the pandemic. Nevertheless, house prices have continued to rise faster than rents in most cities. Yeah, it kind of resonates with that previous episode that we just did about immigration records being broken in Canada. So the next part of the report says rising rates bring imbalance to the forefront. As a result of the low interest rates, home prices have continually drifted apart from incomes and rents over the past decade. In current cities in the bubble risk zone, prices have climbed by an average of 60% in inflation-adjusted terms during this period, while real incomes and rents have increased by only about 12%. And I think, you know, there's kind of that lead lag effect, like you were mentioning in our original recording of this episode. Oh, right. I forgot that was... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to bring up some past trauma. The rents are starting to catch up, right? So anyway, I mean, these are really important things to think about. And it's why we talk so much about examining an area's demographics and job market, because those things are fundamental to its resiliency against a downturn. And let's be real, you know, we're about to see a pretty big downturn in the Canadian economy, I don't know specifically about how is it, like house prices, but we can examine the past like we have in past episodes. And when I say resiliency, I can mean prices, but I can also mean the ability for your tenants to pay rent because if they have a job in that local economy. And I'm not trying to sound you know bearish or predictive when I say the word downturn, but the Bank of Canada has literally made it clear that they intend to destroy jobs and create a hard landing in order to get inflation under control. 
They've said a number of times that we need to balance the labor market, which basically means they need a bunch of people to lose their jobs so we don't see wage inflation run away. Yeah, from you know they've they've sure made it sound good. They put a like a, the the best spin I guess they could have. By, we need people to lose their jobs, but they don't really say that. So, and that's that's where the scary part of the report is to me is that the robust labor market therefore remains the last pillar of support for the owner-occupied housing market in most of these cities we're looking at. With a deterioration of economic conditions, this too is at risk of faltering. Indeed, we are witnessing the global owner-occupied housing boom finally coming under pressure and in the majority of these highly valued cities. Significant price corrections are expected to be coming in the upcoming quarters. So basically, the Bank of Canada is aiming to kill, and they've made it clear, like they're aiming to kill what UBS calls the last pillar of support for the biggest real estate bubble in the world. Fun. Man, that's mean. That is mean of them. So I'm going to jump to page 10 now just to read the commentary on Canada. Real house price levels in Vancouver and Toronto have more than tripled in the last 25 years. An urban housing shortage amid strong population growth and falling mortgage rates are typically seen as the two main culprits of long-term property bonanza in both Canadian cities. High investment demand has also added significantly to the price increases. The index has been flashing warning signals for the last couple of years. The most recent housing frenzy that began in 2019 as mortgage rates fell has continued into 2021. Property price growth in Vancouver and Toronto accelerated to its highest rate in five years, with house prices now respectively 14 and 17% higher than a year ago. Upsizing during the pandemic on the back of strong income growth has done its part in pushing up demand. Households have also been leveraging up at the fastest pace since before the financial crisis. And although the rental market is running hot with rents climbing by more than double their five-year average rates, they could not keep up with the pace of an owner-occupied market. Bubble risk for both Canadian cities is again highly elevated. The housing boom has become more of a countrywide phenomenon, and this is important for us to consider because we want to be a coast-to-coast podcast, and we are seeing a spreading of this frothiness across the country. And you know, we're going to cover it on our next episode, the Korea stats, sort of what's happening in the price environment there. In such overheated markets with already very stretched housing affordability, the recent rate hikes by the Bank of Canada could be the last straw that broke the camel's back. New buyers and owners during mortgage renegotiations not only need to pay higher interest rates, but are also required to provide more income to qualify for a mortgage. Talking about the stress test here, price correction is already in the making. Yeah. Wow. A lot of good stuff there. So we've gone over a lot And next, we're going to get into price to income and price to rent ratios and get a bit more of a quantitative understanding of where Canada falls in the global real estate market because it could provide a bit of foreshadowing for where real estate could go for better or for worse. But before we do that, let's just take a quick break. Okay, let's dive into the numbers again. We're now looking at page 13 of the UBS Global Real Estate Bubble Index, and there's a chart with a heading that says, the number of years a skilled service worker needs to work to be able to buy a 650-square-foot flat near the city center, and here's how that plays out. So in Hong Kong, it's between 22 and 26 years, 13 to 17 years in Paris, 11 to 16 years in Tokyo and London, 
8 to 14 years in Tel Aviv, Munich, Singapore, and Sao Paulo. 7 to 9 years in 7 cities on the list. New York, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Sydney, Geneva, Zurich, and Vancouver. 6 to 8 years in 5 cities on the list, including Milan, Warsaw, Los Angeles, Stockholm, and Toronto. And then there are about six cities that appear further down the list than Toronto. So (laughs) Vancouver appears 15th on the list. Toronto appears 20th. So by the time you're finished reading this page in the chart, you're you're sort of wondering why UBS actually says Toronto is in a bubble. I mean, seeing our cities on that list does make me feel like we're in pretty good company, you know, even though it's basically a list of beautiful but the most unaffordable places to live on earth you have to remember that those places are that way because they're centers for world trade they're world-class cities they have history and culture and there are a ton of people that want to live there i mean fundamentally you know any of the long-term bullishness i might feel towards canadian real estate right now is definitely based on canada playing a more active role in world trade and more migration of people and capital coming here that that comes with that rule. And I I think that other Canadian cities will gradually benefit from Canada moving in that direction. This means long term, I think investments will gradually perform better. And especially outside of the core areas, actually, which are, you know, they're always going to be expensive, like the rest of the places on this list, they're hard to invest well in. However, you know, in the short term, I don't really feel that bullishness right now, because other fundamentals, especially rental rates don't make Toronto or Vancouver feel exceptionally compelling as investments. And that's what's primarily discussed on the next page. So let's get to that, that page next, Nick. Yeah, turning to page 14 of the report, the heading says price to rent. Sound familiar? Well, that's because we've mentioned before on this show, before the bubble index was released actually, and that's in episode 26, how to decide which market to invest in. So go do yourself a favor and listen to that episode if you haven't. We used an inverse price to rent ratio on there in this bubble index is basically determines the performance of each market. Yeah. So what we used was rent to price, which is like basically a rough cap rate, just like you would calculate a cap rate with NOI, so your rent over net operating income over price. We calculated it with the market rent, so like the average rent in that market divided by the market price. And rather than price divided by rent, which is what UBS is using here. So their bubble index basically uses the opposite. It's sort of like a payback period almost metric. So you can, you know, and you would actually see a payback period used as an account manager or a fund manager. Yeah. And I mean, that's an important term to understand because the term payback period refers to the amount of time it takes to recover the cost of an investment. So simply put, it's the length of time an investment needs to reach that break-even point. So both people and corporations mainly invest their money to get money back. Surprise, surprise. Which is why the payback period is so important. Because in essence, the shorter the payback period the investment has, the more an attractive investment it becomes. Determining the payback period is useful for anyone and can be done by dividing the initial investment by the average cash flows. So price to rent, and it measures in years how long it would take to pay off that asset. And here is a list. So in Munich, Hong Kong, and Tel Aviv, 44 years for an investment property to be paid off. 44 years, Dan. Yeah, it's like a 2.2% cap rate. I mean, I feel like that's basically like a, a condo in Canada's two leading markets. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. Well, in Frankfurt, it's about 42 years. 
Yeah, so same thing, like a 2.3 to 2.4 cap. And in the land of delicious chocolate and private banking, both Swiss cities, Geneva and Zurich, just a nice, cool 40 years. Yeah, so 2.5% cap rate. Stockholm and Paris at 34-year payback periods. So 2.9% cap rate. In the land down under, Sydney, Australia, we've got a 33-year payback period. Yeah, so a 3% cap rate. See how easy the math is here, guys? It's literally the inverse of a cap rate. So you're 100%, 100 divided by 33-year payback period equals 3%. So that leads us to Amsterdam at 32-year payback period. Tokyo at a 30-year payback period. Singapore at a 29-year payback period. 27-year payback period for our very own Toronto. Okay, so again, just use Toronto as another example. The equation is super simple. 100 divided by 27 and that gives you about a three and a half to three point seven cap rate, which, to be honest, isn't that bad. I mean, honestly, like that's not bad for like the index and what we're comparing it against. And it's actually the exact cap rate that I have and have seen listings at. But I actually have that fiveplex listing that I mentioned in Toronto. So it's it's actually surprisingly accurate for such a rough, broad metric that they're using. Yeah. Then we go to Europe. Milan and London are both at 27-year payback periods. And next on the list is my hometown, Vancouver at 26 years, which is just under a 4% cap rate. Yeah. And and then after Vancouver, we have a few areas that would be considered better investments based on this metric. So Madrid, Boston, Warsaw, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Sao Paulo, New York, Dubai, and Miami is last on the list with a 15-year payback period, which is like a 6.6 cap rate. It just doesn't seem right to me, to be honest, unless maybe it's like an Airbnb party house or something. What is going on? I'm going to Miami, man. That is that is a major pull factor for Miami. So for the purpose of helping everyone listening right now and to make this more of an exercise comparison for real estate investments, maybe you should visit a couple of these RTP ratios for other Canadian cities, just kind of like we did in episode 26, convert them to cap rates just for the coast to coast comparison. And now we've got some good global comparison as well. Yeah, it's a good idea. And and so we have Toronto and Vancouver from the UBS report. And then we tried our best to basically recreate these for other Canadian cities. And we're going to go through the remainder from worst to best. And you might actually be surprised with how the list starts. Yeah, wow. This is if you thought Toronto was bad. Move to Whitehorse because it is a 38-year payback period there. Wow. Yeah, what? Yellowknife, not so pretty bad as well, but I mean, not as bad. Yellowknife sits at a 29-year payback period. Then all the way down, Toronto seems cheap at this point at 27-year payback period. Vancouver follows quite closely with a 26-year payback period. Over to Montreal at a twenty-six payback period, twenty-six year payback period as well. So sitting at about a four percent cap rate. Yeah. So you know, for context, your territories in Canada are very expensive places to build homes and to get goods to, and so you see a lot of inflation in the home prices there, and rents really haven't necessarily kept up. So the economies don't necessarily function as investment economies, and and nor should they. Maybe like as so that's kind of why those payback periods are so skewed above. So, you know, getting below or so getting above that 4% cap rate. So we have Charlottetown, Calgary, and St. John's around a 22-year payback period. Yeah. And then within that same region, we go to the prairies with Saskatoon and Regina, both around a 22 up to 25-year payback period, just kind of sitting in that mid-4 cap range. Quebec City is around a a 21-year payback period or a high 4% cap. 
Winnipeg is around a 20-year payback period or a 5% cap rate. Remember the math here, folks, 100% divided by that 20-year payback period equals a 5% cap rate. So things start to get a little juicier as we go further down the list here. Edmonton sitting at around an 18-year payback period. Moncton is a 15-year payback period, which is about 65 to 6.6% cap rate. Halifax and Dartmouth at 13 year payback period, which is like a 7.7 cap. And, you know, that's pretty damn good. The other problem with the price to rent ratio or the payback period as a metric is it's kind of like a golf score, which is lower is better. Not my golf score. I mean, my last two rounds, <laughs> I, I should probably just retire, but yeah. Yeah. So I think it's kind of confusing when you're trying to score investments side by side. And you know, you know what, like just for obviously like by no means are we trying to claim here that Halifax is a 7.7 cap market, by the way, but just by recreating that payback period thing, it kind of shows you the challenges with using, you know, a payback period metric, which is more of like an you know accounting metric for, for fund management than real estate. So we, that's why we try and stick to the pure cap on a deal by deal basis, and then you kind of got to average it across the market. So NOI, net operating income over the asset prices. I think it's cap rates are also more digestible or a smaller number, and it's also a higher is better score. So you know we can look at the score and basically be like, okay, you know I know a four is better than a three. So there we go, we're good. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? It's it's always a moving target, but we're just trying to shed some very high level light and and perspective on different markets across the country here. I think that was a great deep dive into the UBS bubble index. Hope everyone enjoyed listening as much we enjoyed putting it together. I'll say in in conclusion for me, you know, one, it definitely could be worse. But overall, when you see Toronto and Vancouver next to the likes of Hong Kong and Zurich and Miami and San Francisco and Singapore, you know, those are some pretty good names to be in, in the same circles as, right? We're, we, we're holding good company. So overall, I, I'd say this is, this is pretty bullish for, for Canada in general, as well as the leading indicators in Canada, which seem to be Vancouver and Toronto. Dan, any any final thoughts? No, I mean, it was a really fun episode to do. It was, it was even more fun the second time, Nick. I think we crushed it. <laughs> and you know what? Like, everybody, I would encourage everybody to read this report and the past ones. And like, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, as you digest it, chew on it, it starts to just change the way that you think about real estate, asset prices, valuations. And it doesn't need to be this fear-mongering thing. The idea here is to, to challenge you to think differently about the real estate investment opportunities in Canada. Love it. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of your favorite Canadian real estate podcast, signing off. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.